The medical information communicated in this podcast is of a general educational nature. If you are feeling unwell, please seek the attention of a medical practitioner. Any advertisements promoted throughout the podcast are not endorsed by the presenter or any of the guests interviewed. Hi there, welcome to MediTalk, a medical podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You're with Danae. Medical appointments, we all have them and we all will get sick. So unfortunately, at some time or another, we or a family member will become unwell and will need to see a doctor or visit a hospital. So how do you get the most out of a time when you feel most vulnerable and often scared to ensure that we're attaining the care that we need when we need it the most? To help us become more confident health advocates for ourselves and our family, I thought it was important to speak with Dr. Matthew Anstey, who is a specialist intensive care physician at Sir Charles Gardner Hospital in Perth. He is also the current chair of the Choosing Wisely Australia Advisory Group. And then Pip Brennan, who is an executive director of the Health Consumer Council of WA, which is an independent, non-for-profit organisation dedicated to supporting Western Australians to have a kinder, person-centred health system. They are going to share with us some information about what we should know about informed consent and give us some great key questions to ask our health professionals when we're next attending a hospital or a medical appointment to assist us in our decision making. What is informed consent? Well, Danae, informed consent is really when a person, they say yes to a treatment or test in in this particular focus, and they understand exactly what they're consenting to. So they understand what the risks are, what the benefits are, what the alternatives are, what happens if they do nothing. So when you go to a medical appointment, whether it be with a GP or a specialist, when would you as a patient be asked for consent? I think that's a really good question and I guess I would like to almost say that my description of what informed consent is doesn't happen very often. That is a reality. Now there's all sorts of barriers to it happening well. One of the first barriers is people actually understanding what they're consenting to. We're not medical specialists, we're patients. So it it can be really hard to know what you don't know. And also it depends what circumstances you're giving consent in. Uh, It may be quite stressful, you may have just had a difficult diagnosis and you might not actually be hearing much at all. And of course, some people want to know everything about something, other patients just say, just do it doc, you're you're the, you know, you're the professional. So there's, there's a lot of barriers around informed consent. It's an extremely important thing because the patient is the one that wears the lifelong consequences of consenting to something that may go wrong. So in the case of a procedure, when asked for consent, what happens with that information? And are they asked to sign consent for additional information? I don't think people get asked that much about their information. It's much more around consenting to procedures. Yeah, and so like it really, it really again, it just it depends. Some people have good processes around consent. So, say for example, if you know you're going to have an operation, yes. ideally you're going to have information about that procedure well in advance. So you've got some time to read through, think about your questions. Um, you know, do a bit of googling. I'm a great fan of googling. It's democratised health information, and you know you have a bit of a chance to think it through before you come and come to the actual place and and provide your consent. What I find is really interesting is that people aren't given a copy of that consent form. So it's something that, you know, would be really important to have. 
Also, sometimes forms can look like somebody's consented, but they don't have any recollection or understanding of what it is that they consented to. So, you know, there's a, there's a lot of complexities to it, and it, it is actually a really hard thing to do well. Being the CEO of the Health Consumer Council, what experience have you heard about where patients don't recall consenting to something or they didn't realise they were consenting to something that they had no awareness of? I suppose, um, I mean, there are in fact so many, so many things that come past our door, it'd be hard for me to just pick one. And the advocacy team commented to me that in some ways, lack of informed consent is at the heart of almost everything we do in a way. But but a really key example I'm going to use is um, the women who have had pelvic mesh implants. So um, some of the listeners may be aware that there was a national inquiry done in over 2017 and the findings were handed down in 2018. That's affected people worldwide, but the, this particular inquiry was, was Australia-based mm-hmm. and literally it said the number of women impacted. So as a nation, we don't have any idea how many women have had pelvic mesh implants, so there's, there's a concern right there. What was interesting for me was to see when the recommendations came down, there was one actually that spelled out how to do consent. And I thought that was really concerning that an inquiry, um, you know, so these are politicians, these are not medical people, that they felt it was really important to spell out how you do consent. So is the reason why that would have been communicated due to the possibility of there being an oversight of consent? There was so many examples of consent conversations which could only be described as manifestly inadequate. For example, a lot of the women talked about um, being told, oh, it's a really simple procedure, you know, it takes 20 minutes. And it may have taken the surgeon 20 minutes, but for some of these women, they've had permanent life-altering consequences from that 20 minutes and endless revisions and, you know, loss of jobs, relationships and and an erosion of their mental health. So some of them even talked about being told that they'd be like a 16-year-old again. And that was literally the consent conversation. So there was nothing along the lines of, I'm going to put an implant in. Once the implant goes in, it cannot come out. I am not able to take it out. Um, there have been, you know, some, you know, some levels of complication that are quite, you know, concerning given that this is not a life-threatening condition. Are you still happy to go ahead with that? We could do nothing. We could try physio, you know, all that kind of stuff. None of that, none of that happened. And I think what's really key is that, um, I mean, I mentioned before that some consumers don't necessarily want to know all the details or, or don't have, you know, they don't have the confidence to have those conversations. They are trusting their health professional to raise issues with them so that they can make an informed decision. So once they realise that, that that conversation about it's a 20-minute procedure, you'll be, you know, be like a 16-year-old again, when they find themselves with, you know, permanent life-altering consequences, their trust has gone and it's very much a, a betrayal and it feels like a betrayal. They have put their trust in the health profession and the health profession has let them down. So in terms of informed consent, the patient shouldn't feel pressured to sign anything right there and then? I think that concept of shared decision-making is really important. I think if it's seen as a, as a cooperative experience between the health service professional and the consumer, like I know that, you know, say for example, the concept of asking questions like, what's your understanding of your condition right now? That open question elicits both how much health literacy somebody has and how much interest they have. So you can tailor your conversation accordingly. So I think it's, it's something that has to be done in a respectful, collaborative way.
What is the simple advice around informed consent? So for example, the next time a patient visits a doctor and is recommended to have a procedure, what should they do regarding informed consent? So there's some really great tools out there that people can use. I started earlier in the conversation saying that people don't know what they don't know. It can be really daunting. So um, I know that Matt Anstey is going to talk about this more, but the Choosing Wisely campaign has done an excellent resource, which is five questions to ask your doctor. Yes. Now, these five questions can really uh, transform how that interaction goes. It's very simple. Do I really need this test, treatment or procedure? What are the risks? Are they simpler, safer options? What happens if I don't do anything? And the last one talks about financial consent, which is one of the costs. Financial consent is another big issue, but just sticking at the moment with clinical. So so that's a fairly simple thing that most people can get their head around. That, so that will flush, that will help you understand what you don't know. Yes. So the doctor's answers might make you go, oh, okay, right. I, I think there's another really important question that isn't on this list, and that is how many of these procedures have you done in the past and what have been the outcomes? That came from the Henry Marsh book, Do No Harm, and he said this is what this is basically what all patients should be asking. And I think I guess I'd like to reflect if we're going to buy, I don't know, a bike or a car or a pram, something like that, we will put a lot of time and energy in re into researching something. Yes. We need to think about the same sort of thing. The only difficulty for us as consumers is there is no choice website we can go to yes, that's so going to have it all there. In there. Most of our decisions have to be made in a bit of a vacuum of information. So what can help fill that vacuum is your clinician. So if you start with the five questions to ask your doctor, it can help you. I honestly don't subscribe to the Dr. Google is, is a disaster. I think Dr. Google is incredible. I know that there's a range of different things of lesser and greater quality and obviously any government website is going to give you really good info, a university website, a health advocacy website, I mean the Better Health Channel, the Victoria Better Health Channel is terrific. Invest in finding out because this is your body and your health essentially is the cornerstone of, of your quality of life. So do not gamble with that unwittingly. I wanted to tell another story too. Um, a friend of mine's father has is a long-term cardiac patient. And at the time, his cardiologist said to him, I think you should get this implant. And the implant was, um, my understanding was something not unlike a defibrillator so that, because he had, I believe, atrial fibrillation, you know, so it would basically shock the heart and if it's it stopped. He did his own research and he said, I don't want it. His cardiologist was quite concerned and almost a little bit cross, like, you know, this could be really good and this, but, you know, there's that sense of the, the patient had pushed back and said no. Now, um, he's still alive, by the way, but that cardiologist has since realised that that implant wasn't the best thing and he said you did the right thing. And I think this is another issue that I feel very strongly about as an advocate and that is the issue of implants, um, any kind of implant that goes into our body. Ideally, most implants are not designed to come out again, so think about them as something that's not going to come out. So if something goes wrong, just remember, it can't come out often or it cannot come out without further surgery. So the stakes are really high. I don't believe um, either patients or clinicians understand enough about how we approve things. There's a very low level of evidence required to get something on the TGA register. It may just be predicated on a similar device. If that similar device is later taken off the register, all the dependent devices are not taken off the register. So what, what it's really relying on is that post-market testing. The post-market testing isn't happening in an efficient way. So many people are, are um, actually 
being harmed by implants. So I guess I would say if, if you're going to get any kind of an implant, you really, really need to think about this is going in, it cannot come out unless I have surgery. And as the um, pelvic mesh ladies have found out, sometimes it cannot come out at all. Please, this is your body. Don't just hand over your power. It's really important that you treat it like this is a partnership and you're bringing your own, you understand yourself and what your needs are, what you're hoping to achieve. Um, there's always a lot of other things you can think about beforehand. You can think about lifestyle changes. You can think about physiotherapy and other allied therapy. There are other non-surgical things to think, consider. And I think it is also okay to get a second opinion. I think we really need to understand that good doctors who advocate getting a second opinion because they're confident in their diagnosis. It's not being disloyal. It's not saying you don't trust that doctor. It's just showing self-care. And self-efficacy. Yeah. And I think it's really important that if you find yourself, you know, asking a range of questions, you know, like the five questions to ask your doctor, and you may also ask about how many of those particular procedures they've already done and what the outcomes have been. If you find that they're not willing to talk that through with you, then it's a sign that they perhaps are not willing to really partner with you in this shared decision-making process and that perhaps they're not the right person for you. And again, you know, you might think it's slightly socially awkward, perhaps it is, but this is your health, this is your body, and you must feel comfortable with your decision. Well, I think that's a great way to end. Could you give our listeners three key points about consent? Think about it as a partnership and do not be afraid to ask questions. And refer to the five questions. Refer to the five questions. The Choosing Wisely is it's a terrific resource. And there are, for example, procedure-specific information sheets. So if you're actually having a procedure, we've got these one pages. You can have a quick look at those. And then when you go see your specialist, you can ask for the full four-page version. And feel comfortable to get a second opinion. Very much be comfortable to ask for a second opinion. And never forget how important that your health is to you and you really need to have the final say. It's okay for you to have the final say. Thanks for chatting with me today. Thank you so much. Dr Anstey, are you able to um, talk a little bit about the Choose Wisely campaign in Australia? Choosing Wisely is uh, a national initiative that's aiming to start conversations between clinicians and also between clinicians and patients about the types of treatments, procedures and tests that they get. And it's specifically looking at those things that are of low value mm -hmm. in which they don't really add anything in terms of changing the patient's uh, outcomes mm -hmm. or diagnosis, but obviously cost both the patient time in terms of going to have those things, possibly false positives from tests that you didn't need them and it found something that wasn't actually there and then you go mm. and have a lot of other things, and then costs in financial costs as well to the, both the patient and to the, the healthcare system. So how did the initiative come about? In 2011 in the uh, United States, the American Board of Internal Medicine basically wrote a statement about professional responsibility for doctors included resource stewardship. Mm -hmm. uh, so the concept that it's not just you and the patient in front of you that you're worried about, but you're also worried about what else is going out into uh, what's being given also to the community. Mm -hmm. So if I spend all my healthcare dollars on you, mm -hmm. I have less to spend on someone else. Yeah. And so the, there's this tension between doing everything that you can with doing things that are going to change what happens and leads to better outcomes and not preventing access to healthcare for other people. Yeah. So you can understand that, you know, if lots of people were getting unnecessary tests that they didn't need, some people are going to be missing out because there's no 
capacity in the system. Yeah, so the budgets. The, the budget goes up. Yes. But also the people who really need it aren't getting access to the tests they, they do they need. need. Yeah, right. And so um, as a challenge, they tried to identify uh, five things within the control of their specialty, so their medical specialty, that they thought they had control over, mm-hmm. so things that they ordered themselves. So that would be um, just to help listeners. So that would be when you go into hospital and you get ordered pathology tests yeah. or radiology. radiology tests, or you get prescribed a medication, or you're told you need to have this procedure done. Yes. And so the I suppose some of the commoner examples that we're hearing about are. People with low back pain. Mm. So we hear low back pain is very common, but low, most low back pain gets better by itself. And so all the fancy scans that we do yes. don't change your outcome. But you have to go and get the test done. Often it picks up minor abnormalities that are unrelated to your symptoms. Yes. Um, and they don't change what you're going to do. Yeah. So that's one thing. Where that's one example. One example. Or uh, another recent example with a procedure is uh, knee arthroscopy in older people mm. who have arthritis. So knee arthroscopy doesn't seem to change the outcome for those people with arth- arthritis. Yeah. So people end up getting an anaesthetic and a procedure that's not going to change their disease and how they And feel. what could have been done, they can still manage. Yeah, they could go to the physio, they could get, you know, simple pain relief, they could have a, a you know, a gym program, all those other things. Yes. Um, and so I suppose you divert your attention away from things that might be helpful, a lower risk and, you know, probably lower cost. Yes. And you end up going down a different pathway. Yeah. Uh, and so different specialty colleges have come up with different lists. Okay. And, um, that was the United States. Australia started a few years ago, so it's called Choosing Wisely Australia. Yes. Um, but there's now more than 20 countries around the world who are doing it. Um, slow medicine movements, it's called in Italy. So, yes, I have actually been to the Slow Food Festival. Uh, I did an awful lot of eating of slow food. Uh, but, um, oh, is that right? Yeah, slow so food. Slow food in Italy. So That's amazing. Australia's been doing it, and so now we have many different medical specialists, but we also have pharmacy, uh, physiotherapy, nursing. So we have a yeah. sort of a, a multidisciplinary set of uh, participants in creating these lists. And so the fact that other countries are now participating in this initiative, has it been shown to be worthwhile? So that is a really good question in terms of if you're going to do these things, how do you evaluate it and work out when yeah. it changes things? Because you can obviously stop doing things yes. and you can reduce costs. Yes. But what is the impact on patients' health and uh, other things? The evidence is still coming in, but it appears that in, you can definitely reduce unnecessary things with no impact on adverse impacts on people. Mm. Uh, there's a good example from New South Wales where they uh, orthopaedic specialists have reduced knee arthroscopies by a significant amount and it That's seems to help in that area. Yeah, right. Um, so obviously... And and utilised other management strategies? other management strategies and obviously um, the patients seem to be exactly as they... Um, you know, yeah. If they have ha- had a procedure... The other thing about choosing wisely is I've talked only about the clinician-clinician conversation. Yeah, but what about the patient? That's a good point. Yeah, so the idea is this is a two-way process and I think if you think about when you go to a buy a car, yes. you go to the car salesman, you put quite a bit of trust in what they're going to tell you. 
Yes. And you have a different sense of different car salespeople. And also you have different expectations of the type of car that you want. Yes. You know, whether you're interested in fuel efficiency, all those different things. Mm. And so I think the same is there in your health. Mm. You know, you and I might have different expectations of what we want from our health with the same condition. Mm. Um, you know, say um, I broke my wrist, you broke your wrist. If I'm very active, I might want an operation, so I'm back out doing whatever I'm doing. Mm. Someone else might say, actually, I don't want an operation. I'm happy with a cast. I'm happy to wait and yes. see. You know, the different options might be available. Yeah. Um, and so choosing wisely is about starting conversations, not just about low-value treatments, but about all treatments, tests, and procedures yeah. so that patients feel allowed to ask questions yeah. um, about things that matter to them. And so the, the movement has a list of questions that patients can take armed to their doctor or whoever they visit to mm. ask the appropriate questions. And rather than, I suppose, feeling like they're going to see a specialist or see their GP and sort of just taking on board, yes, you have to go for these tests, really feeling comfortable that if they go for the test, why they're even going for the exactly. test. And if they need to have it, if they weren't to have it, what would be... The outcome. Exactly. Yeah. So what are those five questions then? What should we be all asking? Is this true of questions that we can utilise in our visits with our GPs as well as our specialists? Everyone. Everyone. The really nice thing, and some people will be aware that different organisations have created different sort of consumer question builders. These uh, choosing wisely questions, five questions, I think can work in any scenario. Yes. The five questions... um, uh, you'll put a link on the show notes. I'm I will, sure. absolutely. Uh, so do I really need this test or procedure? So, you know, sometimes... So what would be a good example of that? So uh, knee arthroscopy, we yes. were just talking yes. about uh, CT for low back pain. Do I yes. really need this CT of my back? I've had back pain for a couple of days. Yes, is, is those it going to change anything? Or, you know, do I really need these antibiotics for this cold that I've got or sinusitis yes. or ear infection? Yes. So those are sort of topical things that keep coming up. What are the risks? If we took the common cold, what are the risks? Well, antibiotics don't work against the common cold, but the risk is that a small number of people will have an allergic reaction to antibiotics. A certain number of people get diarrhea from antibiotics, Mm. uh, change resistance patterns so that if you actually needed an antibiotic in the future, your uh, antibiotic resistance patterns may be different. Um, So there are medical risks for you from taking it in addition to them not working. Yeah. (laughs) So that's not good. And then the next question is, are there simpler, safer options? Well, Mm. paracetamol, rest, those sorts of things for the cold is a simpler, safer option. Yeah. What happens if you do nothing? Well, we all know what happens with the cold. It's miserable for a period of time and then you get better. And what are the costs? Well, if you were to take the antibiotics, this script will cost you some money when you take it to the pharmacy. You know, the the costs may also be measured in if you were the unlucky one who got a reaction or something Mm. else. Those are potential costs that you could... And I wonder um, whether too, as as people get older and we're living in this ageing population, there's some patients who get to an age and they might not want to go in for a procedure at 80 years of age or they might not want to still be on their lipid-lowering drug at 80 years of age. And I suppose it's feeling comfortable with asking the question whether you're a carer or a loved one or and feeling comfortable to even just have the conversation. So these questions um, that we just went through, the five questions for consumers, I think it's important to understand that not all doctors will also always know the answers. Yes. And I think the more patients ask these questions, the more the doctors will be versed in 
working out the answers. Yes. Most of the time they'll know the options, but they might not know the costs or, you know, they may not be aware that you have to take time off from your job to travel, yeah. to get the test, daycare, whatever you have to do. Yeah. There are a lot of considerations for people when they follow something that the doctor didn't really need but was doing because they thought they needed to do it. Following due course. Due course. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes doctors do things because they feel that they're expected to do them. The patients come for something, I want to give them something. And I, I will say I, I went to a doctor's practice and I was speaking with the doctor actually in, in their lunch break and they, they actually did send the patient home and said, I just think you need some rest. And actually I think patients, we need to be – not always expecting a script or not always expecting a referral, that that's always the right outcome and that exploring the other options is a good idea. Yeah, asking asking what will happen if we do nothing or we take, a you know, the simpler, safer option, what will happen? Sometimes you want to choose the, you know, the, the, the more whiz-bang newer option, and that's fine. But yes. understanding what the pros and cons are are really important. Important. And the other, I think the five questions, I'm a, um, a carer for a loved one, and I think even if you're a health advocate for a family member, being aware of these five questions is really important, not just for the person that it's affecting, but also relatives you know, because sometimes it might not be the person that's affected that has the courage to ask the questions, but sometimes when you're sitting in with the appointment and you feel more able to just be a little bit more distant that you feel comfortable to ask those questions. I think that's true. I noticed that even, you know, from time to time we, we treat, uh, in my clinical role, we treat other doctors and they don't always feel the confidence to yes. ask questions. And so you imagine people without the health literacy that doctors have don't feel comfortable asking questions, don't feel that they're allowed to or not sure what to ask is the mm. other thing. Oh, I feel comfortable asking, but I don't know what to ask. Well, these questions give a bit of a framework. Yeah. And I think the more that people start to ask them, the more that they'll be expected. More comfortable. People will be more comfortable. And I also think as a doctor, if I'm having a conversation about something complicated, this is a nice framework yes. to use. It's quite it's a good to starting follow. platform. Yeah. yeah, and the other is uh, it came up with uh, we were chatting with Pip about being okay with asking for a second opinion because if you don't feel some of the question your questions weren't answered, perhaps it's worth getting a second opinion. It's right, like uh, there you know in lots of things and especially sort of some of the cutting edge medicine that's happening these days, there are different opinions mm. and there are different accepted treatment pathways that can look quite different. Yes. Um, and understanding that's really important. Because we seem to, when we go for a car, we do a lot of research, you yeah. know, weeks of going to different car yards. Yeah. But it's interesting that we sometimes don't feel as comfortable, even if it was just um, having a second opinion, just so then you can weigh up, oh, you know, this is the information I've got from this person, this is the information, and then coming up with a decision that they feel comfortable exactly. with is really important. And I think um, one of those things is this concept of shared decision-making. What I, is that? So I, it's the idea that the doctor and the patient share both their expertise from both directions. So the mm -hmm. doctor shares their medical expertise about what the expected prognosis is, what the best treatment might be, or the treatment options. But the patient shares their values, so their mm -hmm. values for you know what matters to them, what yes. they hope to get out of the treatment, what really matters to them, and adds in those values to the prognosis or the decision-making from a medical point of view, and they share the decision. 
not all patients want that. And so these questions are sort of part of shared decision-making, but they're also informative. Even if you give over the decision-making to your doctor, there are practical things that you could ask your doctor to understand. Yeah, which I think and do your really research. And do your research. Yes. Um, because I think that there are different options available and I think it's probably worthwhile for patients to do that research and, and feel feel that they have. So is there any sort of tips that we can leave listeners with that as a doctor you would practice yourself as a patient or your family members' advice that you would give them? One of the, I think there's a few difficulties in this is taking time for these conversations. Yes. It's not always, I suppose, evident when you go and you see how busy your doctor is, yes. see how busy many other people are waiting. You don't want to take up people's time. So one way is to go pre-armed, get your five questions, download them from the website, or just think about your questions you may have and go in and you can sort of start off, I have these questions. Yes. And you can sort of preempt the doctor in terms of what there is going to happen in that consultation. Especially in a specialist appointment when they're going to start talking about, I don't know, having an angioplasty done or, yeah. you know, chemotherapy chemo, agents. Yeah. So you could say, you know, what are the risks? You, you know, yes. get it out there. Um, and the costs. And the costs. Up front. Up front, all those things. Where am I going to go? How much what are the side effects? To, yeah. Get off work? Am I allowed to drive? You know, there's a lot of considerations yes. there. So write down what matters to you in terms of those things. Try and think about what are the other options out there and then ask those, doctor, uh, those doctors those questions. But I think if you go in pre-armed with them, yes. it makes the whole thing less time critical. The difficulty is if you get to the end of the consultation and then you unleash a whole lot of questions, everybody feels a bit time pressured. Yes. So go in there organised, pre-armed with some questions and a little bit of note paper or yeah. nowadays you know, often it's wise to bring someone with you sometimes because yeah. when you're emotionally invested, it's so hard to sometimes remember the answers. So even when people have given you really good answers, yeah. you walk away and you think, oh, gosh, what did he say? Yeah, so bringing someone with you to an appointment is... It's a great idea. Yeah. Um, and there's five questions. Yes. But you don't need all five questions. Maybe only one's relevant to you. Yes. You just want to know, is there a simpler, safer option? The rest of them don't really matter. Yes. Ask the question that matters to you, pick and choose, and it may change for the different scenarios. That you're yeah, fantastic. Well, thank you for your time today. Pleasure. And I'll make sure all the links are on the show notes. So thank you very much. Thank you. It is important that medical decisions are done as a partnership between the patient, family members, and medical professionals. So please ask more questions when chatting with health professionals and feel okay to do so. For more information about our topic today and speakers, please refer to the podcast episode notes. You've been listening to MediTalk, a podcast talking all things medical in a way that you can understand. You can follow MediTalk podcast on Instagram and Facebook. If you haven't yet, please take a minute to subscribe, rate and review this podcast via iTunes or your podcasting app. If you have any health topics you would like to hear discussed, please email them to danae at meditalk.com.au. Thanks for listening.